Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to. Did I start? Did I hit records? I did. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <laughs> Welcome to a new episode of the Mo Show podcast. It's an honor for me to introduce uh, Captain Fahad uh, Sindhi. And, and just before I introduce you officially, I want to tell you that I had a chance to speak to some of your colleagues just before we shot. And two of them separately, independently, told me, You are about to have someone on the show who represents the entire ecosystem of Saudi Airlines in a 360 degree way that no one else does. So um, make sure you're on your A game, Hamid, um, and because this guy is 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 the gem of gems. So I just wanted to to kick off with with giving you that little uh, that little point. Thank you, a very humbling, Hamid. <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean to catch you off guard, but I was like, you know what, I have to mention it to him uh, because, uh, you know, because like I, I feel like in life, you know, we go about our business, we do what we do, and maybe sometimes we don't know who we touch. And it's nice to hear something being said about you behind your back that's that's positive. Uh, and, I, and I and I wanted to convey that to you. Um, Captain Fahad Sindhi, uh, an ex-pilot, um, and, and today he's the uh, MRO, which is a new acronym for me. Uh, maintenance, after Googling it, I realized uh, maintenance, uh, head of maintenance, repair and operations uh, at Saudia Technic, which is, uh, which is a new name, formerly SAI, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so coming from the pilot seat for a couple decades to, to where you are today, um, you really do know the airline business probably than anyone else I can talk to. How do you reflect, generally speaking, on, on your journey so far, Captain? Um, uh, it's absolute privilege being with you and the show, Mohammed. And uh, uh, thank you for that uh, amazing introduction. Um, so we were just talking off the air earlier about how complex this industry is, but how near and dear it is to everyone's heart. And whenever you're embarking on a journey, the air travel industry is right there with you. It's it's a companion that you do not ask for, but we hope that we're like companion across the globe. Uh, became a commodity. Half the population uh, of Earth traveled in 2019, right before the pandemic. And we're expecting up to 80% of the population to travel annually by 2034. That was incredible projection how important this, this industry is. So being in the pilot seat for... Uh, close to two decades and, and transitioning to the wider ecosystem. Um, I've been absolutely blessed in my career so far. It's just all the opportunities that came at the right time with the right team and the right challenge. And just, uh, I, I'd be lying if I say I, it was orchestrated. Uh, it just, I, I know nothing um, outside this industry. That's how I like to think of my time. I do not want to be an expert outside. I want to be as as engraved in this industry as possible, as as knowledgeable as possible, so that we could contribute and we could leave we could leave uh, um, an impact um, sector wide. So you could imagine twenty five years in Aramco, um, twenty two of which uh, in the aviation ecosystem and. I left at the, the, as, as the head of the Aramco Aviation, it was a corporate aviation department. And then opportunity comes to continue with the industry outside the company. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to take it on. Uh, my next move outside of the role that I had in Saudi Aramco was going to take me away from aviation. And I really felt sad 
for a better part of a year when I realized, all right, this is probably the end of the line for me in this, because then the next move is going to be lateral somewhere else and then vertical into probably different parts of the business in the company. Aramco is a massive conglomerate, probably into hydrocarbons, productions, upstream, downstream, technology, um, HR. I really do not want to abandon this industry. I absolutely love it. And I I enjoy every time I do in my own spare time from, from PlayStations to PC games to talking to my kids is all around this industry. It became a part of my character and, and my family's character and who we are. So um, finding myself now having run airport operation, ground ground operations, uh, maintenance, uh, previously flight ops, general aviation, commercial aviation into the industry fabrication manufacturing is like uh, reflecting back. It's uh, one amazing ride. Would you say it was something that caught your interest well before you entered the workforce? Was it a dream to be involved in the in the airline aerospace industry in, in some capacity? So uh, I, I grew up in Jeddah. Um, I lived bulk of my life in, in the eastern province. Um, I'm absolutely proud of the Aramco DNA I have. Um, joined the company when I was 17. But as, as a Jeddah boy, growing in, in the city here, uh, Saudi Airlines is is it this is what you aspire to 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 join um if you're gonna stay in this part of the country this is the aviation hub of the kingdom of saudi arabia and i remember back in the day my brother and i uh my brother Mohammed and i would would uh, lay in our back in our balcony and watch airplanes fly over and when i grew up i knew this was the initial marker is the approach to to air air traffic coming into runway three, four center to be precise. Every time they fly over here, they put the gear down. Now, fast forward 30 years in the future as a pilot, I know why we put the gear down right overhead where I grew up, but I was fascinated with these beasts. And I remember every now and then when airplane is late in, and the airplane is late in configuration, as it passes overhead, it was like, his landing gear is not down. I wonder what's going on. That curiosity sparked at an early age. It just became very interwined with, with me growing up, to be to be honest. So naturally, as any Jetta boy would do at the time when I finished high school, first application was to Saudi Airlines. I want to be a pilot. Mal uh, Arad, number of reasons didn't didn't materialize. So ended up listing for Aramco and succeeded. Uh, went on scholarship, got my mechanical engineering degree, came back, worked in downstream and. Lo and behold, it's just one day there is an email that comes company-wide announcing an opportunity for engineers to convert into fixed-wing pilots, commercial jetliners pilots. And the prerequisite is to be an engineer. I was like, I'm ready. That's the one. <laughs> that's, that's the one. Let's do it again. Let's reapply. So, and it worked. It worked out. Um, quite a, a stringent screening program, but uh, um, I, I was really happy to have a second go at this. Yeah. <clears throat> Year one as a pilot. Was it more demanding than you thought with all the travel and the being away from home and, and there's the stress of being up in the air more often than you would typically be? Uh, what was the first couple of years like, if you were to reflect? So the stress of it started actually before flying uh, as a job uh, during training because second week of my training, 9-11 happens. Oh, God. And there goes a bunch of Saudi students studying aviation in the U.S. and you could imagine the fallout of this and... And, and the circumstances surrounding, but it was it was a golden opportunity to to take a step back and understand where we are, what context, what narrative, how can we represent the country, what's going on. So the the, the stress was on from day one because of this. Um, post the post uh, the academic program and coming back to the country, I was I was blessed in the fact that 
Aramco flying, um, for the most part, does not require you to spend nights away from home. It is challenging in terms of its flying hours. So you'd be up at two o'clock in the morning to make a flight at four o'clock in the morning, carrying company employees and resources to different parts of the uh, the, of the country and, and back at the end of the day. So it's quite intense in that respect. And it was, yes, it was, it was shocking. It was like drinking from a fire hydrant. Uh, um, it's um, during training, you don't really get to study. Yes, you, you study the regulations and the academia around aviation or what have you. But once you're in the seat. Was it just that the, the novelty of it that you're about to take off and you are the captain? I mean, you don't forget that day. You don't forget that takeoff. Am I right? In, in 100%. Assume? It's um, all of a sudden it dawns on you, right? And we're taking off in the morning. And this is my first flight as a released captain. Released meaning I finished my training. Now this ship is mine into the wild that's the crew these are the passengers and the sense of responsibility was it, it just i did not prepare for it to dawn like that but as i advanced the throttle for takeoff it just it felt so real and became, so heavy say, really real. heavy and you're staring at multiple screens you're talking to people on the radio you've got a youngster who's looking up to you in the in the in the, in the right seat uh, first officer who not too long ago i was in their shoes and I used to look to my captain for guidance. Now I'm the one being looked at for guidance. And, you know, this disgruntled passengers, the cabin crew, the early mornings, the, all the possible disruptions that could come into place. And that's when I realized being a captain of, of an airplane in, in a commercial setting is one of the most difficult leadership roles you could ever assume. Synthesizing um, hundreds of data points, taking inputs, audible, visual, uh, nonverbal cues here and there, and you've got to communicate all of that and take decisions every step of the way. It's quite an incredible learning curve. Captain, and I, I think it's, a, it's an underappreciated profession, just like teachers. I feel like they're not appreciated enough. If we were to compare a captain of a plane with a coach of a football team, if a coach makes a mistake in a football team or in a football game, you lose the game, life goes on. With a captain, you've got souls on board. So it's a different level of decision-making stress. So I, I, I salute you and I really feel that it's a profession that needs to be more appreciated because you have to make decisions under pressure and you have to get it right. Question, are decisions made collectively in the cockpit or is the captain makes a decision and then instructs the team? See, that's the beauty of aviation and the beauty of flying. There is a really cool book I highly recommend, uh, not about aviation, but it's driven from aviation. It's called The Checklist Manifesto. And the airline industry is the first industry to actually come up with the concept of a checklist. See, the discipline that you get in the cockpit, Mohammed, and I know I'm veering away from maintenance here for a second. I'm just, for all my colleagues out there who are flying, uh, God bless you all. Uh, the, the, when you get into the cockpit and you're doing these sectors and flights time after time, day after day, sometimes four or five times a day, right? You get four or five flights a day, back and forth. And every time we do these flights, the cohesive manner in taking the decision, guided by the system, documented by a checklist that you have to go through time and time again, is incredible. That is tremendous discipline. Imagine every time you get into your car, you go through a set of switching of certain buttons to get the AC just right, to get the radio just right, to get the car just right, to put up the sunshades, put down the windows. And if you do it 10 times a day, eventually you're gonna look for a quick setting. Yeah. 
yeah, there's no such a thing in the airplane. You've got to do it every time. Not only that, you do it in a certain flow. The person next to you has their own flow. Then you check one another. Then you read the checklist to confirm you have done what you intended to do every flow. And you do that as many times as it needed. Every time you take off, every time you land, you've got to do it. And that sense of discipline, I always say, if you bring down the cockpit discipline and apply it to any industry, you bring it to a whole different level of ops excellence. The world would, would look like a different it's one. It's just a commitment. It's incredible. And that's the checklist manifesto. So back to your point, how do we take decisions? Guided by checklist, guided by the strategy of flying, which is a flight ops manual, the checklist that guides, uh, a quick reference handbook in case of anomalies, but also through the dialogue. Can you, before we get to, to, to safety and, and maintenance, hmm. can, can you recall um, a circumstance where you were really stressed and had to make a decision, um, but but one like sticks out as to be like one of the hardest decisions you had to you had to make. Does one exist? Uh, so when you talk about flying, and typically I see uh, my colleagues and friends and family members always ask pilots, uh, "Have you ever had an engine failure?" That's like, you know, a big event. It is not. It's not. It is not a big scary event. A big scary event is having an electric failure and electric. all all the screens go dark that is scary all the screens go dark at night that is scary all the screens go dark at night over the north atlantic that's really scary <laughs> when you have no instrumentation luckily chances of this happening one in 10 million it just and the redundancy in the aircraft system prevents that so that's the architecture of how it's designed but that's a scary moment i've had electric failure during daylight um, standing by instruments came in, fantastic, no problem, but it was a scary feeling not being able to see what is happening. Yeah. Um, is failures? Not really. Not really. Yeah, they're so reliable, number one. Number two, when they do fail, the other engine through certain dynamics is is, is fine. You can fly off one. Yeah, the, the whole performance calculation is based on making it back to safety yeah. based on one and even gliding if, if you need to. So that is, but, but what I had happened to me is, you know, when you fly on the wing, by the way, I, I did this and I called it a wing. This is, I'm not sure if you're up for some trivia. Please. Yeah. So how many wings on an airplane? Think of a triple seven. Four. Four? Yeah. What makes you say four? Two in the tail and two in the mid body. Oh, that's a smart one. Okay. So it's, um, discounting the tail, you would say? Two. Two. It's one. Because it's one piece. It's one piece. It's two sections of the wing with a fuselage coming in the middle. But it's actually for a wing to be a wing, you have to measure it tip to tip. So we call it a wingspan from one tip to another. And that's the flying aerodynamic shape of a wing. On the wing, there are surfaces that move. These surfaces are supposed to increase the surface. Flaps. Of, uh, flaps in the back, slats in the front. So these surfaces are supposed to improve the total surface on the wing to allow for the airplane to stay in the air at lower speeds. Something called Bernoulli's equation and, and having to do with the surface area of a wing and how the air flows over it. But at lower speed, you deploy those slats. So if you're not at lower speeds and they're not deployed, you have to be at higher speeds. So I had those failed in one flight and that requires you land with a much higher speed than you would normally do. Um, that was about the most eventful thing I've had in my career as a pilot is, is uh, flaps up landing, what we could call it, uh, flaps up landing. I remember the landing speed was uh, in the vicinity 180 knots or so, 176 and it should be. knots. should be close to 130. That's a significant part, especially when it comes to the landing calculations, how much runway is left, what brake you use, what reverse. Any incident happened because of that? 
No, it was just... Uh, you had enough jam. runway? Enough runway in the kingdom. We're so blessed with very long runways, alhamdulillah. Yeah. Uh, given our climate as well, it's it's helpful. But most pilots go through their career without uh, um, anything of that sort. But uh, I, it just reminded me, a lot of people like, how do the engines? I was like, the engines are fine. You don't have to worry about that. It's, <laughs> it's when the screens go dark that you get really... I'm glad you went back to that. I wanted to ask you, when the screens go dark, does that disengage autopilot? Uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well you don't trust the pilot. <laughs> no. I, 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 North Atlantic at night, screens yeah. go dark. You'd kind of hope that the autopilot is still engaged yeah. until... There is... Uh, it's a, the world of aviation is fascinating. There is something called escape routes, right? Uh, there's uh, what happens and how do you exit an airway? is like a highway. Airplanes stacked on top of one another, thousand... Uh, um, um, foot separation and RVSM environment, reduced vertical separation minimums, um, packed. It's very dense, very... It's, think of the highway to, to Mecca, how busy it is. Uh, what happens when you have a, um, a tire blast or, or a puncture or car malfunction? How do you... It's exactly the same in there, but you just can't pull over and wait for help. No. You, you got to do it in a certain maneuver. So it's, it's an industry that has evolved over a century now. First flight in 1907, right? Yeah, December 12. Incredible. Yeah, and air traffic control, I think those people also have their work cut out for them. I know when I'm in LA, I see the traffic line. I'm like, so they have to contact each one of those planes and they're perfectly uh, separated in the perfect distance and altitude. London as well comes to mind. Massive. One. Jeddah, Jeddah, Riyadh, one of the finest air traffic controllers globally find, uh, I say that with no bias. I, I've, I've traveled across the world, I've flown across the world, and and seeing what our men and women ATC in the kingdom do really brings tremendous sense of pride. Job. Amazing. And, and definitely in the last decade, there's more frequency of planes landing. In and we're expecting a lot more. I mean, we're talking national aviation strategy that is, uh, the, 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 the targets is to grow from roughly 100 million passengers a year to 330 million passengers a year. An influx that is globally, right now, the global fleet is about 27,500 plus or minus a few hundred aircraft. It's going to go up to 36,000 in the next six years. Six to seven years. 25%. 36,000 aircraft. And we're not building airports fast enough yeah. to accommodate. Yeah. So the frequency that you're referring to and, and how many aircraft come in for takeoff and landing um, is is going to be visible. It's going to be notable. And when we're, we're witnessing the unfolding of the targets of the vision, um, you see in Riyadh particularly, it's uh, definitely going to be another evolution there in yeah. terms of air traffic. Totally. Big part of the vision, uh, the airline industry, uh, the new airline that came on board, what certainly is doing as well. It, it really is an integral part of Vision 2030. You feel it, you see it. 100%. I, uh, my colleagues at Public Relations Saudi um, have come up with the, with the term that I love. It's called Saudi Wings of the Vision. So it's fascinating when you look on, when you look across the 11 pillars of the vision and, and, and the deliverables and what we need to achieve, it is predominantly revolving around uh, lessening dependency on hydrocarbons and investing in adjacent sectors, other areas of growth for the economy. To be specific, it would be tourism, right? Yeah. Um, Ministry of Tourism is doing incredible work with all of the different uh, organizations within. Um, so, and I, I say this with absolute objectiveness. If you look at our map right now, 
we're we're in a very turbulent part of the world. Outside the GCC is quite turbulent. Everywhere around us, uh, you know, we got Yemen to the south, uh, uh, turbulence in Iraq and Syria to the north, uh, Sudan uh, to the west, Iran to the east. With our vision of becoming a logistics hub, with our vision of becoming a tourist destination of 100 million tourists a year, I'm pretty sure they're not going to drive over the border. They're going to fly in. So very quickly, you're able to draw a line between objectives of the vision of diversifying away from hydrocarbons, investing heavily in our tourism capabilities. And I'm not just talking classic tourism, even convention tourism, medical tourism, sports tourism, religious tourism, which I hate to use religious tourism, but it's uh, you know just a segue into this. Um, they're all going to be flying in just because of the virtue of where we're positioned and, and the stability, alhamdulillah, uh, in our country and, and, and the GCC nation. So with that, the, the, how vital it is for a vibrant, competitive, sustainable aerospace industry becomes really apparent. Even domestically, Captain, I mean, between our two biggest cities, there's a thousand kilometers between them. And I, I made the mistake three weeks ago of driving it. <laughs> Never again. Nine hours. I'm like, no, God bless the airplane. Next time I, I drove nine hours to Riyadh, flew back in an hour and 20 minutes. And, and I had a newfound respect for airplanes. I was like that 1000 kilometers that took me nine hours. I just did it an hour and 20 minutes playing the whole way. So even on a domestic level, we rely so much on the aviation sector. Is it 35 airports in the kingdom? Uh, 28, 29, 29, 29, but, uh, I don't expect that, uh, it's going to take us long before we hit 35. Yeah. We, we, we are going, and you bring something amazing, actually fascinating. If you allow me just to, please, please. to tap on what you just said, see your choice of transportation at one point was a vehicle on the road. The second choice of transportation was an aircraft. Both are tools to get you from point A to point B. And you mentioned time. See, when we look at, at flying, it is the most efficient tool of transportation that gets you the shortest time for the best value. If another mode of transportation shall be invented soon, then that becomes obsolete in certain routes. And that takes me to the Jadariyad route that you mentioned. Many people do not know this is ranked number three or four, I believe, in the last I month. I knew it was up there. As the busiest, busiest. air traffic routes in the world. Jadariyad, Riyadh, Jadariyad, in the world. It's incredible. I mean, you're talking second or third right after New York and D.C. Okay, oh, New York, D.C. Yeah, JFK, D.C. There is a couple others, but this this is it. And and, and, and not far behind, it, it is Jeddah, Cairo and Riyadh, Dubai. Okay. So the kingdom is always at the center of high-density traffic between different city pairs of, of similar distances. And that begs the question, when we look at the industry, are we looking at an aerospace industry? We're looking at a transportation industry. It's a transportation tool. Off the air, we were talking about uh, uh, the journey of a passenger, a journey of journeys, right? And I said that that reminded me of some um, part of the kingdom's ability to truly lead the world is is our incredible wealth of innovation and novelty and ideas to disrupt and 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 to unlock value that was not seen or was hidden uh, to others before us. Many would say in order for you to have a contributing 
uh, impact in a certain industry. You've got to be able to manufacture. You've got to be able to industrialize. You've got to be able to uh, create R&D centers. Absolutely, all of the above. But you also could be a think tank and a, and a thought leader in an industry of which the classic fundamentals not necessarily reside in near geographical. So we don't have to be uh, the manufacturers of the next Boeing or Airbus or X. Uh, uh, aircraft, but we could definitely revolutionize this entire industry through disruptive thought process. And as such, you know, the, the Rome to Milan city pair was the golden goose and the demise for Alitalia. When the bullet train was introduced on that sector and it became viable door to door to take the bullet train that route was completely gone. And that was the beginning of the fall of for, for Alitalia. Recently, a few months back, you gotta have to Google this, I read it somewhere. Um, the French parliament just passed a law that will be enacted, I believe, 1st of January, 2025 or so, that prevents air travel services on flying on city pairs that are connected by train two and a half hours or less. Interesting. That's going to be a massive disruption because now we're looking at functionality, time efficiency, sustainability, impact and environment. It's an industry that has many factors coming in um, to determine the outcome. But I find that fascinating because when I look at an airplane, I always look at how can we take that experience for passengers and take it to the next level? I worked at airports, my previous jobs, and uh, was in charge of, of, of making sure the airport functions properly in terms of luggage handling and passenger handling and, and all the logistics and the plumbing and wiring under the surface and so on and so forth. And I've sort of taken a step back and tried to reimagine what the industry looks like if we're able to approach an aircraft in the same way we approach a train at a platform. What if you could come up to, you come to a train five minutes before it leaves? What if I could do the same for an airplane? What does it take to restructure the entire airport experience and look at the safety parameters and look at the efficiency and have airplanes as efficient as trains? Wouldn't that prolong the airspace industry? Wouldn't that make it more accessible, makes it more efficient? So I think in the kingdom, um, as we take on leadership role globally in many aspects uh, with the national aviation strategy that is backed by $100 billion of investment, between now and, and, and 2032, I believe, we could really revolutionize the entire industry without having to, to uh, um, dive first into manufacturing and industrialization, which will come eventually and timely, but maybe uh, a bit more resource intense than, than this. And I, I, I take example of Ireland. I'm not, I'm not really sure any airplanes are manufactured or assembled in Ireland, yet Ireland disrupted the entire aviation ecosystem by the introduction of two things. One, aircraft leasing. So previously, right, before the Irish model, operators and airlines would buy airplanes. But the Irish came up with a model and said, we could finance airplanes. We'll, we'll take the capital away from you. We'll keep it in our books as assets and we'll lease it to you. That will help generate the right capital for you to run the working capital. It's, 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 a, it's a capital intense business, whether it's an OPEX or CAPEX. And that model made Ireland the, the hub of aircraft leasing. Fast forward 30 years, 40 years into the future, 50% of the global commercial fleet is leased. Wow, I didn't know the number was that it's high. It's incredible. 
I mean, we were just saying 27,500, 27,600 aircraft globally. Half of them are leased. 60% of those are out of Irish entities and Irish-based entities, a tiny nation. Disrupted the entire industry without having to manufacture anything. Second disruption came in the form of low-cost carriers, Ryanair. That's Irish. That's Irish. Okay. So two models, I believe, and I'm, I'm betting that the next two or three waves of disruptions will come from Saudi. Okay. It's my job to try to pick your brain on what those things are going to be. <laughs> um, how much different was it to build you know, or, 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 or set up MRO and what it is you do now compared to what you were doing in an airline? Like, do you carry your experiences from yesteryear in, in the field of MRO today? So yes and no. Um, if, if I take a step back and look at, at, at an airline operating model in its simplistic format, um, actually, let me, let me go back and maybe share a statistic. So every airline has a code, right? Yeah. If you travel on Emirates, it's EK, Saudi, SV, Egypt is MS, I believe. These codes are given by ICAO, ICAO codes to operate. There is 5,000 ICAO codes. There's 5,000 operators, maybe 1,200, 1,300, at best 1,400 airlines out of which are still flying and operating that set. So you're thinking 1,200 to 1,400 airlines. How many MROs are there of the scope and size that we're discussing here in the kingdom that we're building at Saudi Technic and, and others? Probably 17, 18. It's a vastly different business to establish an MRO to run maintenance, repair, overhaul, retrofitting, engine maintenance, airframe, uh, than it is to establish and run an airline. It's a lot easier. Access to an asset, access to a standard, access to a regulatory license, and access to talent. You run an airline. Your differentiating factor is technology. That's your value proposition. That's how you differentiate one airline from the other, punctuality, um, amenities and services. But when it comes to MROs, and when it comes to the other parts of the ecosystem within the aviation industry uh, that have to do with the supply chain, spare parts, engineering, design, quality, these are directly correlated to safety. That's it. You could either demonstrate that you're doing it safely, consistently, time over time, or you're not. There is no room for failure when that aspect. Um, and, and, and that brings up the fact that the MRO cascade effect and the maintenance cascade effect and, and the economy, when we look at the economic impact of, of the aerospace industry is threefold, right? So you've got the direct GDP impact, indirect GDP impact, and induced impact. These are pretty much the three forms of macroeconomics of how a GDP impact is generated from one industry or the other. A direct impact is hiring people directly, uh, acquisition of resources, um, direct dealings and certain uh, uh, transactions here and there. Indirect is the ecosystem around you that you develop. And induced is, we talked about travel uh, and tourism as an induced. So uh, the occupancy of hotels, training centers, the starting because of this and so on and so forth. And the MRO industry, we're able to localize manufacturing. You do not do that in an airline. In an MRO industry, you're able to uh, localize research and development in actual technologies that go into aircraft or support systems. You do not do that in an airline. You innovate in a different arena when it comes to punctuality, fuel uh, management, and, 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 and uh, amenities on board and what have you. But 
from an MRO perspective, it's a crossover between industrialization, manufacturing, service sectors, that's the maintenance sector, and flying. So you encompass multiple sectors in one entity. Um, and the ripple impact is, is quite big. Uh, in a recent study that we have done, we looked at our own Saudi Technic impact to the GDP and to the wider economy once we're up and running in 2025, and it's going to be between 35 to 45 billion reals. And retrospectively, was it, I mean, a half of that, would you say, or a quarter of that, if you took back a decade or so? Uh, I'm trying to see the trend. So the, the capacity, so, so the fundamentals of, of fundamentals of flying and aerospace industry, it's supply demand as any other industry, technology, regulatory framework, capacity management, uh, supply and demand, if I just go back to explain supply and demand will be how many aircraft, how many seats are available on a certain route, demand how many people want to fly in this yeah. aircraft on this seat on that route at this time. Uh, you get that. Then access to capacity, that is access to aircraft from OEMs, sometimes the lead time in this industry. Once you make up your mind and place an order, could go up to five, six, seven years before that order comes in, whether it's leased or bought. It's a tremendous long time it's the lead time is, is incredible because you got a duopoly when it comes globally you got a duopoly when it comes to the most popular jets that we see in the region narrow bodies and wide bodies a narrow body is an aircraft with one aisle so if there is one aisle between you and passenger next to your that's that's a narrow body that's the airbus 320s and the 737 it's a wide body that's anything with more than one aisle yeah, two aisles i prefer those uh, they're a lot more comfortable in the ride for a number of reasons, and we could talk back to aviation trivia and why that is. But but that is a five to seven year lead time. From when you place the order. From when you place the order until you get My it. goodness. If you're lucky, if there is no disruptions, if there is no hiccups to the supply chain, if the OEM is able to ramp up production at the rate they say, another limitation to capacity is access to spare parts, access to trained skill personnel that they're able to keep this airplane flying. So these are the fundamentals. Uh, of course, the regulatory part is what uh, travel rights, what bilateral agreements allow you to fly from where to where, at what load, at what seat capacity number that you unload to uh, uh, a certain sector, uh, going on to uh, uh, the uh, uh, technology of managing this complex web of capacity management, bottlenecks, uh, demand matching, matching the supply and vice versa. Um, um, and, and the final element in the, in the fundamentals, five elements of fun, fundamentals in aviation is fuel. It's the number one greatest uh, known unknown uh, predictability when it comes to airline business. So uh, if you look at a balance, if you look at the cost sheet of an airline, 50% will be fuel and labor. If you add maintenance, it'll probably be 70%, 75% of the total cost of running an airline. So understanding the fundamentals of what governs jet fuel is important to sustainability of, of aviation. With that taken in, 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 in consideration, now you go to how does the MRO play a role in availing that capacity? Well, if you do your checks faster, you avail more aircraft than you'd otherwise do. So instead of an airplane check, taking two weeks now it takes 10 days that means four additional days of flying for this aircraft and you multiply across hundreds of fleets so that's unlocking capacity right it doesn't have to be full acquisition it could be and then if you do it reliably meaning the aircraft doesn't break and come back to you so it continues in service that's unlocking further capacity and reliability 
um, um, if you do it efficiently, lower cost, so you're allowing operators to go and invest what they would otherwise invest in maintenance, in other amenities, in other experiences to the guests, or probably in other network routes and fleets to increase. So all of these dynamic things cater to the capacity. And that's why when we look at the MRO sector in the kingdom right now, um, at Saudi Technic, I, I, I believe we're probably at 800 pound gorilla in the market, uh, 68 years of experience, deeply rooted knowledge because of the strong ecosystem with Saudi group that is now about to become a national champion and open up to everybody. So we're looking at ramping up from 3,200 employees to close to 11,000 in the next three years. That's an incredible impact to the GDP awesome. and the economy and the employment in very critical jobs, qualitative jobs. You took me right to my, my, my next question, actually, and perfect segue to ask you about the employability or the recruiting landscape has probably changed and probably it has changed in the last five years with women coming into the workforce. Does that make you uh, reposition the way you, you recruit? Because it, it's a, it was probably forever always a male dominant profession. Has been. And, and, and now that's no longer the case. So how do you go about that as you, as you recruit females who are now entering the workforce? So the good thing about aviation, it's, it's, it's got a lot of resources and technologies to level the playing field for both genders. Uh, historically, yes, it has been, and still is globally, I, I believe. It's, it's, it's a very male dominant uh, industry. <clears throat> And now that I think about what you're saying, I'm reflecting globally, it is by the nature of it. Um, um, however, what we're doing is active campaigning for skill and talent across the board. So two years ago, when we started our, our journey at, at Saudi Technic and the Saudi Group in terms of this transformation and what we're doing with the aviation ecosystem when the national aviation strategy was announced and part of the logistics strategy, part of Vision 2030, we really had to go back to the drone board and say, I was like, all right, two big issues we're going to have in the future, access to skill and talent, because there is, we came after COVID, right? So post COVID, there was, as people talk about revenge travel, there was also revenge retirement. Many people retired and they never came back. Okay, post COVID. Sorry. <clears throat> Two, academic institutions, because the uncertainty and the aerospace industry, the, the airline industry, the air travel industry was impacted the most during COVID. Many academic institutions stopped receiving applicants that want to pursue a career in aviation because it was very volatile. We don't know what's going to survive. So now we have mass exodus, no training coming in. It created a drought. We're expecting in the Middle East and North Africa over the next 10 years, a shortage of close to 40,000 professionals, 25,000 of which could be uh, mechanics. So looking at what we have to do, looking at what the ambitions of the visions are, we started two years ago and we said, listen, uh, we got to do something about this. We, we have to manufacture talent and we have to make this industry appealing to both genders. And that's when we looked back at Saudi Technic and we said, oh my God, we only have three ladies. <laughs> Amongst 4,000 out of us. <laughs> I was like, this, this, this cannot sustain. Uh, something is wrong with this picture. And they were, as you would imagine, administrative role. Now we stand at uh, close to 200. Not a, a big number, but where we started from and, 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 and distinctive jobs and, and, and mechanical jobs. And we have to do this. If we're going to grow to 11,000 employees, if we're going to have access to best talents, we would be shooting ourselves in the foot if we do not 
allow for equal access to both genders and the best and brightest of minds. Because once again, the, the physical part of it is not as prevalent as it was decades ago. Yeah. So we're hoping that 18 to 20 percent in a few years will be uh, females. But that's that's a, a an amazing jump, mashallah, from three to four to two hundred uh, in 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 how long? Two years. In two years. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I think that you'll be hitting it, the targets that you want. I hope so. You want to hit. I hope so. Uh, Boeing and Airbus are the two giants in the industry. Uh, what kind of relationship do you do you have with them? How do they differ from one another? I'm a I'm a, I'm a rookie on this subject, and I'd like to be educated. So, the. the <clears throat> Allow me to take a car analogy, automobile analogy into this. Um, you buy a vehicle, you have the opportunity to, to sign for a full warranty when you acquire an aircraft, either lease it or, or buy it. And that warranty on the Lexus is the same as the warranty on the aircraft that runs for X amount of hours and cycles and years. Post that, you have the option to continue with the dealer, continue with the company, or you go to a third party supplier. Right. You go and I was like, listen, I'm going to take this elsewhere. Your parts are expensive. You guys, uh, uh, man hour labors is too expensive. I'm just going to do it outside. Same thing for airplanes. So the industry players, the OEMs recognized this and they started to offer more and more comprehensive, longer coverage at competitive pricing. So the ability for airlines to take the airplanes once they're out of the warranty period and take them to third party uh, service centers is diminishing just because of the the, the, the volatility and the expenses and, and people want to have a predictable, um, you know, uh, P&L and predictable cost across time. It may be a little bit more expensive with the OEM, but it's, it's a good thing. So the OEMs were really happy they're tapping into this. I was like, okay, this is another adjacent market we could really milk. But then they, they, they fell into the trap. They're not building service centers fast enough globally. To be able to honor what what their their uh, warranties and we call them power by hour the power by hour credits um, are, are for, so they start looking for service centers, and that's where we came in as a player. We said, listen, we're not going to compete with these guys in manufacturing or win contracts from them. So there's one or two ways the legacy MROs would go and compete for once the, an airplane or an operator is out of a certain warranty period. It's like come with us, sign with us, we're cheaper with us. We decided to pivot a little bit and continue on that and, and work with the OEMs and launch partnership programs where we become an authorized service center on behalf of the OEM. So whatever they have signed is honored through our facility. And that allowed us two things. One, access to a market that was already locked previously. Two, um, it gave us de-risking the the uh, de-risking the consolidation of customers so now my customers are a mix of airlines and oems that de-risks it and at the same time i have a different value stream that is coming that otherwise was not coming in and i was competing with the oem previously that's a change in fundamentals uh, in mros at saudi technic we're, we're we're forefront with that so we signed multiple service center agreements over the past year and we're reaping the benefits of this Aircraft components, systems, or airplanes are coming to us from outside the country and, as a result of this. And, and geographically, <clears throat> sorry, geographically speaking, you offer something that is closer to where that airline X is located. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. If you look in the region, um, uh, we're seeing, see, uh, the big players, Saudi, Qatar Airways, uh, Etihad, and Emirates, 
with the exception of Etihad, Qatar Airways and Emirates, their maintenance facilities are locked to the main carrier. That's very little that they offer to a third party. And that's what Saudi was thinking about. It was like, we have this massive knowledge base, incredible presence, really, really world-class skill and Saudi uh, mechanics and engineers that we could unlock towards capturing much of the wider region. And when we started pivoting towards that, we found tremendous reception on the other side from OEM. So we signed with Honeywell, we signed with Leonardo, uh, we're signing with Airbus and Boeing on service centers and GE on service centers for particular products, which means I'm part of the global supply chain network. So when they have a capacity issue somewhere, they offload the product to me. And that means it wouldn't be foreign direct investment, right? That's FDI, it would be foreign direct income. That's direct income coming to the country from outside the borders and we're really proud of this. Yeah, and, and so you should be. Um, tapping into something that wasn't there and bringing business here is um, is, is kind of <clears throat> also an integral part of Vision 2030. 100%. It's um, <clears throat> one of the pillars of the vision. Yes, at, you know, bringing F FDIs Absolutely. in totality. Yeah. Absolutely. From an economics uh, perspective, how would you say the aerospace industry differs in terms of economic contribution, since we're on the subject of FDIs and all that, than your conventional methods of economy? So it's a great multiplier. The aerospace industry is a great multiplier. Um, um, just to quote, you know, figures and statistics, and I, I, I'm a numbers guy. <laughs> it's just, I love my numbers. Um, so the, the, the revenue, generated revenue of the industry I'm sorry, the um, economic impact of the industry in 2019, I'm just gonna quote a year before COVID because we're at the tail end of full recovery right now, um, it was close to a trillion dollars globally. So we contribute to the global economy as an industry, $1 trillion and roughly 92 million jobs, direct and indirect. In the kingdom, that number is 300,000 direct and indirect jobs and uh, close to 74 billion riyals. Imagine what that could be once we're said and done with our strategy. Once we go to the 330 million passengers, once King Salman Airport takes hold, once Jet the Second Terminal is on, once all the deliveries are here, once the Kingdom ILBZ integrated logistic bonded zones are taken into fruition and, and coming into full operational capability once our MRO village is up and running, once we hire the 11,000 people. It is the economic impact is going to be massive as a sector. We're expecting, I would be predicting, by 2032, this sector will be directly responsible, directly and indirectly responsible for, for roughly a million jobs. A million, a million from 300. From 300,000. You see that. I mean, you see the kingdom rolling up its sleeves with everything a aerospace, yeah. uh, aviation related. Is it aerospace or aviation? Sure. Uh, both are interchangeable. So when you talk aviation, you're talking the flying portion. Okay. When you talk aerospace, it's the flying portion plus the manufacturing plus, plus, plus. See, this is why I love my new job. I would have never known that unless I had a chance <laughs> to speak to you about it. Um, the kingdom clearly rolling up its sleeves. I, a week ago, uh, Crown Prince announced the airport in Abha. Yeah. Uh, Taif is getting a new airport. New airports are coming online a month ago. The, the Red Sea Red Resort, sea. Neom, all these airports weren't uh, in existence a few years ago. And what I notice about if we take King Salman Airport in south of Riyadh, for example, um, as, a, as an example, it doesn't look like your conventional airport. Yeah. That's, 
And you mentioned something about how do we revolutionize the airport experience. When you were saying that about half an hour ago, that airport came to mind because it doesn't look like an airport. And and one one thing that I've heard from a, from, from a few people who were in meetings high up have said that if we are going to do something that is copying, we don't want it. We want to do things that are different. You see Red Sea Resort, things that are different. You see King Salman Airport, it's different. I, I not, not only is it coming online, but we're also coming online in a way that no one else ever has. Absolutely. So when you say 300 million, 300,000 jobs to a million, I believe you. Yeah. Space is hot. It is. And listen, this is, this is once in a lifetime opportunity that we're living right now. I mean, uh, uh, the leadership of the country, the, the vision of His Royal Highness, it, it is answer to a lot of prayers that we've had, we were ready to contribute to our nation, to contribute to the global civilization at large, to really showcase what we could do as, as a young nation and how we could bring about economic prosperity across the border for everybody to benefit. Many sectors are being revolutionized right now. It's tremendous pride when you look at the digital arena, right? Uh, cybersecurity, when you look at telecom, Saudi leading in digital application and something like actually winning awards after awards year after year to me as much as I'm a football out of uh, but, but seeing actually winning awards is actually more satisfying than winning World Cup matches uh, it really puts you out there it shows that you're ready to contribute to a global civilization and I think in the aviation industry we were poised to to have such an impact as a result of the vision, as a result of the Giga projects that were announced. Neom right now is experimenting with novelty concepts in, in, in uh, urban air mobility, never before seen. This is probably theorizing in the moment, soon to be, to be uh, gone into, into trials or so. But when you look at those Red Sea, Neom, um, uh, when you look at King Salman Airport, Abhal, Gidea, I'm not sure if it would have an airport, but probably um, a helipad somewhere, helidex, uh, you immediately see incubators and ability to sandbox trials and innovate. Uh, if I don't do it in Neom, where am I going to do it? That is the vision in the future. If I do not do uh, a concept where an airplane is as conveniently boarded as you board the train, what am I going to do it? Or I do not make it as, as digital of an experience to passengers and save their time, what am I going to do it otherwise? Uh, that together, I think the fundamentals are coming along beautifully across sectors. We have the Hajj and Umrah strategy. We have the travel and tourism strategy. We've got the logistics strategy that calls from 400, 500,000 uh, metric tons to 4.5 million metric tons in terms of cargo shipped back and forth through the country as a logistics hub. So recently in the G20, His Royal Highness and world leaders have announced the India-Europe corridor. We're at the heart of that corridor. We're at the heart of it. That was like the highlight this of, is, of the G20. Oh my God, yeah. this is, uh, you're talking about the old spice roots all over again, it's, right? It's, this it's, is, uh, it's crazy. I was fortunate enough to be invited. Uh, I was part amazing. of the media delegation. And, and just to hear that news coming out and when it, when it broke, the amount of world press that came to us saying that, you know, you guys stole the show. Yeah. Because, because this is, is huge, uh, this corridor for logistics. And you hear His Royal Highness speak about it a lot. Logistia, logistia. We haven't utilized the Red Sea enough 
as as we could have. Like there were uh, the, the potential uh, for, uh, for for becoming a logistics hub uh, was so high, we didn't capitalize on it. So it really is at the forefront of. Of, of, of even his priorities list, logistics, you hear it a lot. Rightfully so. It's just a catalyst to the economy. If you want to do what you want to do in this part of the world, you've got to be a strong... I mean, I dream, and I, I think, you know, in, in, in the Saudi National Day, right, 93rd, and the slogan was uh, dream and achieve. So uh, we're, we're truly dream and achieve. And I think as dreamers of this young vision, of, of this young nation, I want to see the kingdom turn into a Memphis style when it comes to logistics with all the FedEx aircraft apart. 600 airplanes. Did you say Memphis? Memphis. Tennessee? Tennessee. Is, is that known to That's be? That's the hub for FedEx. I told you FedEx. I'm a rookie, so. Uh, the hub for FedEx. And when you go to Atlanta, UPS, right? That's, when you look at the fleet of UPS and FedEx, you're talking 600 plus airplanes. I want to see that here. I want to see not, not 10, not 20, not 30 cargo airplanes. I want it in the hundreds. That's our strength. That's our logistical arm, not just in ports, airports. How can we turn the airport an entire ecosystem of innovation hubs, storage facilities, uh, sorting facilities, freight forwarders, shippers? How do you make it an entire log logistical chain? And, and I think um, with the announcement of the uh, India-Europe corridor and we're being the heart of it, great things will happen. Yeah, totally. Uh, did you see the pictures of Oxygon and how beautiful that 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 addresses logistics? Doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It's see, you, you, we have we have an amazing opportunity where where we have a white canvas that we're starting off from, right? Dream it, and then rationalize it and bring it to reality. Let's do it. So that white canvas is driving, and and nothing better than having a purpose built or a purpose drawn canvas. Because we're not doing it because we have to do this tiny bit, then we add another tiny bit in order to get to another change or of the industry. No, no, no. We're saying we're going to do this because we want to be in 40 years there. So that's 40 years of purpose yeah. that we're building for. And that allows you, I, I, at the closest I would call it, is a Lego system. It's the set of Legos that come in a box and you could make whatever shapes you want out of them. You want to build a space rocket, you want to build a home, you want to build a swing, you want to build a small field. It's just whatever you want. It's the same set of luggage. It's, it's your imagination and your creativity at it. And like I said, there's no more exciting times to be than now. And I feel that to my peers a lot, my friends. Uh, I say that, you know, we're very lucky to be at an age where we are working. You know, we're not 10 or 15 years old. We're not 60 or 65. We're in that sweet spot between 20 and 50 where we are able to contribute to what I think 50 years from now they will reflect on our time and say that was the point where Saudi transformed to what we see today. You know, they, they laid, not laid the building blocks because, you know, the, the country was obviously established for almost 100 years, but that was the time when they took it to the next level. 100%. And... Um, 100%. And I mean, it's beautiful to see. You see that in the U.S. with the greatest generation, right? The generation that came after World War II and, and built the nation. Yeah. I, I, I honestly hope that we will be looked upon through the lens of history in retrospect 20, 30 years from now, our generation as one of the great generations that helped transform the country mm -hmm. and propel it forward. We're waiting for our moon landing moment for a long time. And all of a sudden we have five or six moon landing moments coming up. 
<laughs> between all these giga projects and announcements that are happening. We we have a nation-defining moment that is coming up, and I cannot be more excited and proud that have aviation, whether center stage or backstage, but definitely the spine to achieving this. In in a quest to be better and build and, and, and ambition and all, and all that comes obviously challenges. Uh, what would you say is, is the biggest challenge that we might face uh, as we uh, enter the world of growing our aerospace industry? So it's TikTok, it's, it's a closed market to begin with, right? Hard to penetrate, very high in IP. Um, I think rationalizing our ambitions and knowing exactly where to punch. Okay. Because uh, when it comes to the global aerospace, we're not the 800-pound gorilla, but we could take an 800-pound gorilla down. We just need to know what to go after and what is the niche opportunities. And I think digitalization is going to be is going to be our greatest tool in achieving so. Um, the challenges will be in finding those common areas of interest, mutual areas of interest. In game theory, John Nash called it the Nash equilibrium, right? Um, the, the 1994 Nobel Prize winner, John Nash. And the Nash equilibrium is essentially achieving a point of mutual benefits between all players, old and new, in a set of game. And the game he's referring to is this. Um, um, uh, business could be a game, um, um, politics, uh, literature, and what have you. So the dominant players in this game or in this setting who agree on what is the win-win-win-win for everyone. And I think this is part of the DNA of our approach to forging relationships and collaborations globally. And you see it once again, we go back to the India-Europe uh, uh, corridor. That was a win-win-win for everybody that was involved. So that was a Nash equilibrium. I think in aviation, we need to find aerospace, we need to find what our Nash equilibrium is. I would like to gain and generate value, but not at your expense. Let's together find new frontiers. Once we address that and we showcase that it is not about win or lose, it's not mutually exclusive, my gain is your loss, uh, you, you'll get multiple sector players whom you desperately need because of deeply rooted knowledge, certain set skills, uh, um, um, certain technology, uh, markets to come and play your game. And, and, and I think we're doing a very good job at this. But once I, so just a quick example. Um, classically, since 1944 or 40, since 1947, I'm sorry, um, there was uh, the, the uh, Chicago Convention governs the aspects of, of aerospace, uh, the regulatory framework. And out of that, ICAO, which is the governing international body of aviation, came about. IATA is not a governing regulatory body. It's, it's, it's a commercial entity that has set of best practices and what have you, but ICAO is the regulatory body. Um, and it, it's a subcommittee of the United Nations. Under it is the FAA, EASA, GACA, and many others that report to it. So ICAO came up with a set of freedoms of the air, the seven freedoms of air. First freedom is you allow me as a nation, you allow my airplane that's registered in my country to overfly your airspace. Second, you allow me to land for maintenance issues. You allow me, third, you allow me to land for fueling. Fourth, you allow me to land and disembark passengers. I carry passengers for me to you. And then you allow me to land, disembark passengers and carry passengers from you back to me, 
right? And this evolved all the way to the model that you see here today, which is, I believe, the sixth freedom that you see uh, of hub and spoke of the Emirates, the Saudis, the Qataris coming into Doha, Riyadh, uh, Dubai, collecting passengers, and then off they go to different destinations. And then the seventh freedom is you allowing me to go from one place to another without being registered with you. Uh, that is more liberalization. If you take it, if you take it back to Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, seventeen seventy-six, amazing, yeah. right? It's the best written book about modern economy, yeah. despite the fact that it was written seventeen seventy-six, and 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 the different principles of free market. That's what it is. It's the free moving of goods and services and labor across borders. Same thing for aviation. How can we go across borders? You ever wonder that right after a peace agreement is signed between two nations, the first thing to do is launch flights? Sometimes before they even uh, assign ambassadors, ambassadors and the first thing to do is like, oh, all right, we're going to launch flight. It, it's a, a powerful symbolic gesture of cooperation. Now we're open to one another. And the most precious resources I have is my people, labor, goods and services. I will allow it to fly to you and vice versa. So with these seven freedoms that were established across the years since 1947, I think the kingdom is poised to add more freedoms. We talked earlier about the Irish model. Um, Brian Eyre added a different freedom, the eighth freedom. Which is? Um, I could be registered in Ireland and fly commercial flights between Rome and Madrid. I don't have to be registered in these countries. Now, this is true within a set of, you know, we call it a bubble agreement, which is the EU in this in this example. European Union have agreed to liberate the market as such. So you've got Ryanair and you've got EasyJet and you got all the others able to manipulate this and, and, and take advantage and add value to the to the economy and to the culture and to the people and stimulate travel with air is, is a recent example. We as Saudis, we could take, just as an example, um, a ninth freedom, a tenth freedom. We're talking urban air mobility, right? What governs air, urban air mobility? Not much right now. We could be at the cusp of this. We could be drafting the regulations for it and sponsoring those regulations and moving on with it. What does it take to fly people between Khobar and Bahrain in, in, in an unmanned or evital type of uh, vehicle? So it's not car, I don't have to go over the causeway. It's not a boat and it's not an airplane where I go over the airplane. I could just take it from downtown Khobar to downtown Bahrain in 10 minutes. There's no such a thing for this. Well, what we, kind we, of vehicle we, we could drive it. What kind of vehicle? Oh, we're talking um, uh, the, the EVTOLs, electric uh, vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, um, or, or even manned or unmanned uh, mobility vehicles, um, carries four to six passengers. So it's like a shuttle, right? And nothing that governs this at the moment. It's a, it's a blue ocean. You, you see that maybe coming online? In Massive. I, I know Neom will be employing this quite a bit. But, you know, if you're in Neom, why can't I just take it over to Amman in Jordan? Why, why do I have to fly? Why do I have to cross a border in a car? So there is uncharted opportunities where we as a country in the aerospace industry could come in and help regulate. And once you regulate, once again, back to the Irish model, you're able to affect in a positive way um, um, an industry that you do not have historic manufacturing capabilities for, but you become a prime player. 
Yeah, you know, we, we, we just when we think that, you know, we have reached the height of technology with planes and, uh, you know. Something else goes on. Something else comes <laughs> on, absolutely. It keeps it exciting. Um, as far as sustainability, and, you know, I'm sure it's something uh, high on your priority list. What what um, does, does your line of work do in order to achieve uh, sustain, sustainability goals and targets? So... Do you allow me just to redefine sustainability Please. as a personal definition? Yes. Not written anywhere. So sustainability, the, the, the just um, the connotation, no, no, I'm sorry, not the connotation. What it triggers um, in people's minds is always environmental sustainability. Fantastic. I mean, there is a lot of push for this, and this is our planet to get protected. We really have to do something before we pass it down to our kids. Fully subscribe to all this, but sustainability in aviation is uh, an aerospace a bit more involved. So it's four categories of sustainability. One is financial sustainability. The silent killer to all operators is running out of cash. Airlines cash intense. Running out of cash kills, and once an airline falls, there is a domino effect in the industry. Remember, we said direct, indirect, and induced economic impact is linked, and it's no. It's, it's not in anyone's best interest that they go through these these uh, financial difficulties and you see them going bankrupt or acquired or consolidation or, or because of that. So financial viability is really important. And that is the financial sustainability part. How do you get it? What do you do? How do you predict uh, your maintenance cost? How do you predict your fuel cost? How do you plan for... There is, uh, this is another trivia. There's something called hidden cost in aerospace. We don't know what it is. We actually call it hidden cost. <laughs> Like, it's undetermined. It's undetermined. Um, in the industry, there is a hidden cost, rough order magnitude of 15%. You bet you'll always have. It's it's the set of circumstances that will surprise you during a given fiscal year for which you can never prepare because they're always different. So the hidden cost of ownership of an aircraft is commonly referred to as the hidden cost of ownership and operation. So financial sustainability, operational sustainability, um, quality, ops excellence. How do I always do what I do just a little bit better every day? That is, and that leads you to to the fact that um, in any industry, at least of which is is, is also yeah, aerospace industry, this is an infinite game, not a finite game. If I may take some cynic words into it, um, we're not competing quarter to quarter or year to year, or not competing. You know, it's it's an infinite game of constant evolution, uh, incremental. Uh, added value, incremental innovations. And if you do that, then this industry, sus industry sustain. This industry flourishes and create jobs and goes into the next chapter that is supposed to evolve into. Um, but if we start managing only the P&Ls and the quarterly uh, profit and losses and, and what's happening here and there, just on a short-term uh, scale, you lose, you lose track, I'm sorry, you lose track of that time horizon that leads to an infinite game. Um, so operational sustainability creates to that infinite, leads to that infinite game. I need to be better than yesterday. How much is it relevant? Yeah, well, that's the benchmark. How much improvement, productivity, so on and so forth. We could get into that discussion later. The third element of sustainability is skill and talent. All right, this is a people-intense industry. Uh, for me to be sustainable, I need to have cons a consistent flow of highly skilled, highly talented employees from both genders across the functions. So over 80 plus different job families in the aerospace industry, uh, at least in the kingdom. Are you touching on like the cultivation of them or their happiness level or? Uh, both, right? So cultivating, right? That's, that's the uh, creation of which, and then making sure that they have a career path. Mm. Um, one of our weaknesses, I, I, I'd say, 
and the industry as a whole, but I reflect as a Saudi in the country, is 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 the succession planning in the aerospace industry. Uh, talent is found but not honed. Uh, you stumble upon it and, and, and it's just not directed well. So if you find somebody who's really good in operation, they may be okay in, in finance, they may be just below average in investment and, and, and strategy, need some improvement. That type of talent development, I think, is missing. And this is an industry, like we said, is going to grow to roughly a million people or so. And I want to see it being led with Saudi talent. And I think we need to do more investing in the development of the Saudi talent across the sector. Um, uh, it's just, anyhow, this I think aviation and, and medical uh, fields both suffer from this, where we have very strong operational people and leaders, but they did not get the exposure and the training and the rest of the elements of leadership. So does that lead to turnover? It does. High that bothers does. you, probably the high turnover rate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are certain jobs that uh, are critical to the, to the ecosystem at the moment. Because of the way they're structured and because of the uh, massive squeeze uh, due to a number of reasons, massive squeeze in profits um, and cost, and we're seeing that come in. So I think this is something we need to address uh, firmly and honestly and openly in the industry to offer good career progressions and really good value for people to have self-actualization within the high labor market that we have in aerospace. The fourth one, of course, uh, back to the elements is financial stability, operational skill and talent, really need to bring them in, train them and keep them. Yeah. Right, the retention. Operative. The fourth one is environmental. Uh, it's, uh, I, I'm not the subject matter expert, but uh, environmental, there is a lot to be done. I mean, if you look at the aviation industry, uh, emissions contribution to global contribution, um, it's 2.5% of the global emissions comes from the aerospace industry. In the transport sector, it's about 14 to 18% from the aviation industry. So it's up there, but it's like, all right, well, there's a lot we can do. It's like more priorities, right? Maritime industry transportation on the road, um, residential building, commercial buildings, energy consumption, energy demands. But nevertheless, we're going to do our part. And that's why the industry is targeting 2050 as a net zero target. The kingdom is targeting 2060 as a whole across the board. And that becomes a challenge in the industry is, is from a fuel perspective on carbon offset, uh, which is first the chicken or the egg. So uh, a lot of folks would refer to what we refer to as, uh, I mean, we talk about uh, sustainable aviation fuel, SAF. Um, to meet today's demand of that blend, you need 450 billion liters of sustainable aviation fuel. In 2022, what was produced was 125 million. That's 0.3%. That's a conundrum. We have to work through the one. Um, engines. The most efficient engine that is able to take SAF at the moment, sustainable aviation fuel, cannot accept more than 50% blend between conventional and SAF. Mm -hmm. And guess what? When it comes to technology, we talked early on that this is a very long cycle when it comes to research, development, building products, uh, prototypes, all the way to certification and then market access. Uh, it's roughly a 20-year cycle for a new propulsion system. That is engines, which is... The, the major consumption of fuel. I don't think in the next 20 years there is going to be engines that will revolutionize 
um, uh, that arena. So what do we do as an industry? We're doing it here in the kingdom. Our MRO village that's about to be commissioned, first phase next year, inshallah, um, and then we'll really have something to the world. This is, by the way, I'll go back to this, the MRO villages where we did something never done before. And I'm not talking biggest, tallest, greatest. No, no, I, I don't believe in that. It's impactful in the way it was, it, was, it was designed in this, and I'll explain that in a second. But we're saying, okay, um, we could do right off the bat, as soon as we turn the switch on and we inaugurate the MRO village, 21% of our total energy demand that we need to run the village will come from renewables. We signed with CERC and uh, AADA and Aramco in, in putting that blend in. Once the airport ecosystem matures enough and is able to push, we could go up to 40% renewable energy. That's incredible. Does that include solar? That's solar. Okay. Solar is a big part of it. That is, that is incredible. We just designed the first of its kind globally, a comprehensive A to Z aviation recycled waste program for everything from, from um, liquids such as oils and fuels and all the way to consumables, filters and, and, and nuts and bolts to components to parts. How do you recycle it in a safe? This is, when we checked, we didn't find it anywhere. In retrospect, that was trashed? That was, well, a lot of it, yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's no nice way to say this. Um, trashed or, or, or disposed of. Disposed. Disposed. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's a big sustainability. Uh, massive sustainability hit. push. Now, albeit the big environmental impact will have to come from fuel, but at least we're showcasing to the world our commitment. If we cannot just do it because of technology right now, we could do it all the other aspects. And that takes into hold the, the, the airport infrastructures, uh, our, our plans for runways, uh, for the support services around the airports, luggage handling systems, uh, all the vehicles inside the airports. There's thousands of little vehicles you see them thousands. roaming around all with the blinking lights. Yeah, yeah. They could all be electrified. Yeah, For and sure. that will be a tremendous push. So I think on sustainability, we could do a lot, but it requires the other three to work. <clears throat> Financial sustainability, operational excellence, or operational sustainability, continuous access to talent. You, don't, you cannot afford to disrupt that pipe. Then environment. And then environment. Yeah. You know, I think uh, what you do is a great example of the country putting itself in a position where they're no longer just the customer, but the service provider, where you bring in customers. Exhibit A. Absolutely. This, uh, so two things, right? Map the demand and then go work on the supply. I think we're entering a new arena. This is the legacy Saudi. We're entering a new arena. The new Saudi is build it and they will come. Yes. Dream it and they will believe it. Make it a reality and it will flourish. I think in aviation, which is we're, we're about to start to take that push there in the logistics uh, sector as a whole. And it's going to pay off. Yeah. It's a good bet. I, I, I bet on this. Yeah. yeah. So would I. Uh, on a personal level, if someone was to ask you uh, what your management philosophy is or what's your philosophy in management and, and how you go about uh, you know, your business in managing, did you say 3,200 people? Um, and uh, current employees um, with total workforce is about 5,000. My goodness gracious. Um, <laughs> I don't manage each and every one. Hopefully, I never manage anything. <laughs> just the system. And, and a lot more to come online, as we, as we just touched on. Do, do you have like a, a common denominator of a theme when it comes to your philosophy and management? So my ethos is the team. I, I think that's true in, in any industry. It just personal ethos. Build a team, systems, and a process, and step back. 
So when it comes to selection of leaders, I'm big, big on, on keeping my eyes always open for talent, irrespective of where that talent is from. Cross-sectorial, cross-pollination, I always do that, uh, bring people from different segments of different industries just to have fresh ideas into the sea. The way I keep an eye for talent uh, is just something developed over the years. Ambitions and good intentions. If this is good, ambitions are there, this is good, this is good, that's it. And if I have to choose, I always go over this. Yeah. Um, that I cannot fix. That's a God give, right? You're born with it. I, I cannot fix this. This I could work with. I could, I could as, a, as an organization, I could work with the know-how, the transfer of know-how, the development, this and that. Um, and then in selecting my team, I always select the best of the best. And when I select the best of the best, I don't tell them what to do. I step back and have them tell me what to do. <laughs> you guys are individually and collectively a lot smarter. <laughs> we have this issue. What do we do? Um, one of the most powerful things a leader could do, and the most important thing a leader could do, is the most important thing is to keep the most important thing the most important thing. It's as simple as that. It's um, So once you have the amazing team in place, once you work hard in establishing a system that governs, once again, I bring the cockpit discipline that we talked about earlier, a system that governs behavior when you're there and when you're not there, and we have the right resources. And once again, you go back to the free market, uh, uh, free market forces that Adam Smith talked about. Adam Smith assumed every individual will act in the best self-interest, which will lead to the group best self-interest. Same thing in leadership. If each one of those management teams is acting in their best self-interest, which jives with the group's best self-interest, then you have an unstoppable momentum. The role of my role then becomes watch out for risk, scan the market for opportunities, come back and talk with the team. So keeping that pipeline of, of management and talent coming is, is something I hinge a lot on. And then I sit down and I listen more than I talk. You gotta listen. One of the issues a lot of leaders have they sit at the head of the, the, the conference room table and, and see meetings for businesses is sort of like notes for music. And I believe one of the most amazing, inspiring sayings was music is what happens between the notes. Business is what happens between the meetings. Not in the meetings, it's between the meetings. Just the same way music is what happens between the notes. And for that, as a leader, when you sit at the table, you got to listen. What's going on? How do you guys say it? I, I think it just, I was asked once, you, you're more of a moderator than you are a boss. I was like, yeah, my job is to moderate the discussion amongst you and listen. But when somebody starts talking, you're, you're sending commands. There are certain situations where you have to have command and control. But if these situations are daily, some is tremendously flawed with the structures and the fundamentals of the business to begin with. Um, so that's roughly 50% of my time. The other 50% is taking care of culture. Culture. Culture, 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 culture. So my guest before you, uh, also CEO of a company uh, that was mentioned on this episode, said that his culture or the way he operates is that culture beats strategy every day. 100%. And that was the first time I, I stumbled upon that saying. His words were, culture eats strategy, strategy for, for breakfast. breakfast. Right. Like, what do you mean by that? Please elaborate. And then, and then, and then he went. And now you just touched on that word. Culture, culture. I, I cannot stress this 
this Muhammad, and it's, it's anywhere, not just an aviation business, and an aviation business more so because there's a lot at stake, right? And by culture, simple things that if you go back to the Maslow hierarchy of needs and the Maslow's permits, at the very, very, very first foundation, right after food and shelter, it comes in security and safety, right? How many people do not feel secure at the workplace and they could be the targets or the scapegoats when a mistake happens? I encourage mistakes. I tell my guys, listen, if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying, you're not pushing the boundary. Now, what I think we need to talk about is when the same mistake is repeated. If you do a thousand mistakes, each one is different, kudos. Yeah. You're my guy. That's it. You you are the one who's disrupting, who's innovating, who's you just discovered a thousand way why this doesn't work. Fantastic. I love it. Let's move on. Now, within the bound of safety and responsibility, we have the governing regulations that that is our ethical responsibility. But within the bound of business, what we need. So how do people do this when they feel safe? How do they feel safe when they know you're there for them? You got their back. You're not shooting them in the back. And many leaders are aware of this, but the execution is vastly different than the theory. Yeah. It's, I've, I've lived it. You have being thrown under the bus. Next question. That's, uh... <laughs> and it speaks volumes for you to say that. And Minister Abdullah Sawaha had a clip that went viral when he was on one of the shows. Uh, and he said that the moment, you know, your, your, your superior or your boss doesn't stand up for you, um, that's when you lose the team. They, they, they won't want to work under you. And, um, and, and it speaks volumes because you, you hear about uh, in, in public protect, in private instruct mm -hmm. or, or discipline or whatever. So I unfortunately had experience of uh, me and certain mm -hmm. members of our team uh, of the opposite. And, uh, and we knew what that tasted like and it didn't taste very good. And it destroys, it destroys not just the business, but it destroys even the fabric of that sector when people are distrusting and, and the sector as a whole gets a, a negative taste. Okay. Captain, right. it destroys the culture. Massively. Yeah. I mean, it's just definitely those companies do not survive. Um, but the impact could ripple across. And, and you know, I like what you're saying because I, uh, I call it the umbrella effect. Uh, once you assume a leadership role, every position has its own umbrella. Some are small, some are big. Um, but as a CEO, I assume I would have to have the big umbrella. And what the umbrella effect is, I am the umbrella for my entire organization and my team. Whenever it rains, whenever the sun beats down too hot, whenever this happens or that happens, I am there, the shield. They just keep going with what it is they have to keep going with. I manage all that external distraction. I shield them away from that rain that is coming or al-ajjur, whatever dust that it's blowing. But each leader should have its own umbrella. If you do not have the umbrella ready, if you're not ready to turn into an umbrella when the moment calls it, you're in a position of authority and not a leader. A vast difference between the two. Do you go to any groups of um, so true. any group of of employees anywhere in, in in an organization and saying, you walk into any organization, I was like, uh, hey, who's the? All of them point to the same guy. <laughs> it's like. That's, they would all point to the same guy. You they definitely have, would in the company hours. You would have to work magic. It was like, yeah. it's like, all right, that is consistent. Got it. Yeah. 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 Um, who's, who's got your back? They all point to the same guy. It's, it's so funny about management. It says, 
um, leaders or, or high position holders have all the authority. Employees have all the information. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you create that level of distrust and lack of communication, you're living in two separate worlds. You got all the authority. Kudos. You're the captain of the ship. You have no idea where to steer. Yeah. You've got all the information of what resources you need and where to go. So it's a balance of, of pushing the authority down or availing authority to trickle down and ensuring there is enough camaraderie in the team that they are able to push voluntarily information up. Yeah. That's when you thrive. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, please do. Because, because in contrast, when you do have their backs, They'll run through a wall for you. 100%. And, and, and that's excellence. That's when you can really take things to the next level. And this is a peoples-to-people -people business. It's the essence of a service economy is peoples-to-people. -people. And if, if you get that right, oh, God, magic will happen. I'm so blessed with the, with the incredible talents I've worked alongside with across the years. And my ethos to them is your personal livelihood your personal interest is my personal interest all i want you to do is just focus on this cause we're here for a calling we're here for a calling and that calling is to put the kingdom at the cusp of leadership of this aerospace industry many outside of our world are in for their own calling to take this nation to where it's supposed to be and that calling is greater than any individual interest. And what I say to the team is, my job, <laughs> I work as a wagon. Literally, I will go follow through your daily chores, making sure your family got their health insurance, your bank account is cool, you just applied for your home loan, you've got your, your, your bank statements done, kids in school, I'll do that for you. That's my job. I'll, 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 I'll push and nurture and, and watch carefully over your progression, career path, promotions, bonuses. What I need you to do is just focus on the task. Yeah. Give me your best work. So it's, it's a, a concept of servitude, and I, I, I believe it was done many, many times over. If I was found in the military, it's a great book, uh, Leaders Eat Last, that also talks about this, um, the uh, command and respect and the, uh, the, the trust relationship between um, uh, military personnel comes from the leaders availing themselves to the service of the group. I need to be taking notes from all these books <laughs> that, you, that, that you're mentioning. Luckily, we're, we're recording. Advice to the up-and-coming... Uh, advice to the up-and-coming... Uh, Boys, I was going to say boys and girls, but ladies and gentlemen who are who are about to enter, you know, the workforce who have an interest in joining aerospace. Um, what would you is is there is there something that you would tell them? Uh, come along, we need you. It's an exciting career. It's an amazing industry. Being around airplanes, it's just a. It's one of the things that give me the goosebumps. Still, uh, I remember vividly this flight. Sure flight, Jeddah to Cairo. And my dad was taking us to a trip to, to Cairo. And for whatever reason, this is one of the earliest memories I have. I go into King Abdelaziz International Airport, the old terminal, if you remember, it's Saudi terminal. I can't forget it. Like, who could? But back in the day, it had a glory and flavor, maybe because we're too young to remember some of the issues or the flight load was less. But I remember vividly not understanding what the counter was for and how to navigate this maze. But I was drawn to the far end of the terminal, which was glass, and you could overlook and see the ramp area with the airplanes parked. 
and we had at the time the movable bus. You remember it was yeah. a such a yeah. very, very iconic. By the way, it's still operation in Dallas Airport in DC. This this uh, technology. Yeah, yeah. I think in general we got it at the same time in the early seventies as Dallas. It's still operational there. Here we we did away with it. But that was such a fascinating mechanism to me. It was like, whoa, <laughs> this is, they call it the mobile lounge, mobile right? Lounge, the yes. mobile lounge. Yeah, yeah. It would come up and connect to this opening in the wall and you walk through it. It was like, what is this? And then it moves on to the airplane and off you go and the hydraulic movement was I, so I can exciting. still smell the diesel. Oh my God, yeah, the fume was intoxicating. <laughs> I don't know what we were inhaling back then, but something did its effect. And, and again, on the and, 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 and just, Looking at people in their best, we used to dress up when we travel. Yeah. We, I really like. I, I cannot tell you. I still remember going through, arranging my my shirt, my pants, my shoes. Where I'm gonna wear this and that, and looking at myself a couple of times. You got to look good when you go to an airplane. We could bring all that excitement back. We could bring all of this back to this industry. It's you talked early about the golden years of flying in the kingdom. I think. They're not here yet. What this country is doing right now, what the public investment fund is, is, is a catalyst of um, um, creation of an entire ecosystem in collaboration with GACA, the National Aviation Strategy, the Ministry uh, of uh, Transportation and Logistics, all the different players coming in. I think the golden era of travel, exploration, we're driven by exploration as a civilization, as humanity. But discovering the unknown, um, this is this is what drives us as a species, and I think aviation gives us that platform. So, become a discoverer, come and be a sailor on this ship. It's uh, it's new frontiers, and we're not even there yet. Dream it, come on board, and when you do, invest in yourself, and we'll invest in you. Especially with the country opening up to tourism, you're gonna have so many first timers coming to Saudi, with the Red Sea project, with these hotels coming online next month. No one, like people don't realize that. In November, we're it's shooting here. now, end of October. It's in November, two hotels open. Yeah. The master plan is 60. So you have first timers coming. You know, they want to go somewhere besides Maldives, Mauritius, and Seychelles. They come here. You're half the distance to Western Europe. Um, so that even, you know, broadens our horizon where, where um, whereas that wasn't a case 10 years ago, the, the whole visa system didn't exist. Today it does. And, and, and that maybe just adds a little bit more work to you and what you do in, 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 uh, in how many planes you need to maintain. To think about it is, is, is incredible. That 10 years ago, we couldn't have imagined this. I, I, I go back to what you just said is many people will be experiencing Saudi for the first time. Um, one of my idols is Carl Sagan. Um, in his book, Contact, he was talking about the first contact between alien civilization and humanity and what that evolved civilization would look like in a four or five dimensional space versus us being in three dimensional space. How can we comprehend? And I think Saudi is evolving into that four or five and six dimension space. And we're going to have classic visitors that are still living in the third dimension space. What we're building here is so beyond Star Trek. What we're working on, it's a completely, and, and it's coming from Saudi. It's coming from that. So yes, we're preparing for the point of contact. Thank you so much for, for coming and Thank making this so conversational. Um, you know, rarely do I have episodes that uh, where, where I forget that the cameras are rolling and, and the microphones are on because I really did feel like we were in a coffee shop. Um, you have a wealth. I don't need to, uh, you don't need me to tell you this. Yeah, a wealth of information. And um, 
And and thank you for sharing uh, everything. We could have gone another two hours, I think, but maybe we should leave something in the tank for future. Um, thank you for what you do for us in in, okay. in so many different facets of uh, you know from your days in Aramco to your days as a pilot and now as as an MRO. Uh, and I honestly, genuinely, really appreciated this conversation. Thank you, Mohammed. It's been an absolute privilege being with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Sir. Thanks a lot. Take care. <clears throat> Thank you for making this conversation. Yeah, well, I'll pick it up.